If you've ever flown in a plane, you know how fascinating it is, that moment where you're either at takeoff or landing, where you can see the roads and the buildings and the houses that you're familiar with from the air. You see streets and you know sites that you're familiar with, but it's from way up high. And one time, Sophia flew and she came back saying, you know, as I looked down, it looked like everything was like little ants just scurrying about. And we know, life on the ground, we know that those are not little ants, that these are indeed speeding cars and broad highways and big buildings, but from the air, everything looks different. Things look different on the ground than they do way up high in the air. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul has just laid out in just a, a fascinating and helpful way the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself by becoming a man. He humbled himself further by dying a death as a man. And he humbled himself even further by dying on a Roman cross. Paul's been laying out this humility of Christ in the first part of Philippians 2. And that's kind of humility way up high, if you will. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, what does that look like? How does that meet us day to day? How do we know if we have the mind of Christ in our lives? Well, that is where Paul turns and begins to effectively to land the plane and to show us on the ground day to day the mind of Christ, the humility that Christ had in having it in our life. And it looks like this. It looks like growth. And it looks like witness. And it looks like multiplied joy. That's what we're going to see in the passage today. So if you have your Bible open to Philippians chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's just pray one more time. Just invite the Lord's help for the preached word. So, Father... Thank you 
for gathering us here today. Thank you for all that has to happen for us to gather and just making this possible. But Lord, not just our physical gathering, thank you for drawing us in to being able to have fellowship with you. Lord, you have met our greatest need. Thank you. Lord, for any here today who do not yet know you, you you are gathering us here so that good news can be proclaimed, so that eternal souls can be saved. Thank you. Lord, we sang earlier, every fear we lay at your feet. Lord, thank you for ministering to us. Thank you for showing yourself bigger and stronger than everything that we might be tempted to fear. Lord, we cast cares on you, things that are too big for us, Lord, but it says we cast cares on you because you care for us. Thank you. And I pray, Lord, you would use this passage to both meet us in moments where we're tempted to fear, but use this passage to care for us this morning. Give us your perspective. Lord, speak into our lives adjust trajectories. Help us, Lord, to be more in love and more grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ than we were before we came in. Lord, we thank you and we bless your name. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen. So in Philippians 2, Philippians 2 goes from humility way up high with the humility of Christ and the call to have the mind of Christ to on the ground. And we see this connection at the beginning of verse 12 with the word therefore. It's a hinge. It connects the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ in those prior verses to you and me. What effect is the humiliation of Jesus meant to have on us day Today, well, verses 12 and 13 draw out for us the first implication, namely, humility pursues growth. Humility pursues growth. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul commends the Philippian church. He calls them beloved. They are loved and accepted and precious in the sight of God. And so this this call to obedience, this call to growth, it's not a means of like earning God's favor or becoming beloved as though they aren't already. No, he says, no, this this is the response of those who are loved by God. And so he calls them beloved. And then he, he also points out their prior obedience. He says, you have always obeyed. I think any of us would be so blessed by that kind of description. You're loved by God, you're walking in obedience to God, 
And so after this commendation, then what are beloved and obedient people called to do? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Now, if you're familiar at all with the Old and New Testament, salvation is said to be by grace and not by works. And so this can be puzzling because salvation is said to be a free gift. We can't work for it. We can't merit God saving us from our sins. There's nothing we can do to rid ourselves of our sins and stand perfectly righteous in the sight of God. We needed a Savior. And praise God, He provided a Savior in Jesus Christ. His perfect life for us. His death on the cross for our sins so that we might be saved and not face the wrath of God. Salvation is a gift from beginning to end. It's by grace and grace alone. But here Paul says, work out your own salvation. You know, salvation is a big term in the scriptures that includes a lot of other aspects, differing aspects. Salvation includes justification and sanctification. Salvation includes adoption into God's family. Salvation includes God getting us all the way home to himself, which is called glorification. And so these are all these different aspects of salvation. And so God justifies sinners. He justifies us when we trust in Jesus alone. When we turn from sin and trust in Jesus, exercising faith, God declares us righteous. He justifies us. That is a free gift. And then there's this growth in sanctification, growing to become more like Jesus in our attitudes and actions and thoughts. This aspect of sanctification is what Paul is talking about when he says work out your own salvation. And it's what it looks like to be affected by the humility of Jesus Christ. We receive salvation, but then we grow. We pursue obedience. What Paul is warning about here is he's warning about this idea as though growth is optional. That's what he's warning against. This this notion, many people think, hey, if I just get saved, if I can just get to a place where my sins are forgiven, now I can live however I want. I have in my pocket this get out of hell free card. I just I just gotta get saved. And so Paul's like, no, no, no. Salvation is a free gift, but it doesn't mean that there's nothing for us to do. And so he addresses this with the phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the sense of the word that's used in the original is that we're working to see something completed, working until it's completed. And it's a work marked by fear, church, and trembling. This is not the the slavish fear that God's going to lash out against us 
Rather, it's a healthy fear of I want to honor such a great God. I want to live worthy of such a great gift. And it's, a, it's this sober awareness that what we do and how we live really matters. You know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, you'll know that among those, the people of Israel, those numbered among the people of God, God's people, by and large, did not work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So we're not the first ones to this. There's others that have gone before us. Hebrews 3 says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter the land because of unbelief. Church, fear and trembling recognizes many have walked down this road before us. And we must endure. We must respond in humble obedience to God's gracious gift of salvation. Many who were numbered among God's people became proud. And they did not fear. And they did not work out their salvation And it says, and they did not enter his rest. Now, while this is a command, work out your own salvation, we're not left on our own. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the command is work. Work out your own salvation. And the power is, for it is God who works in you. And oh, church, this this is immensely comforting. God calls us to something and then promises the power to do it. That's so comforting. He's not calling us to to a command and saying, hey, you're on your own. Work, for it is God who works in you. So his work doesn't cancel out. God doesn't just zap us and bring us all the way home to himself and we're fully sanctified and godly. There's work. There's labor. We're We're called to put sin to death. We're called to cultivate righteousness. We're growing, but behind our work is God's. And it is the strongest and it is the most comforting of works. He gives us, it says here, both the will, that's the desire, that's actually wanting to follow him, to hate sin, to love obedience. And then it says he, he empowers not only the will, but the work, the power, so that we glorify him. Paul Tripp, in one of his books, he, he writes, God knows that in and of ourselves, we are not up to the tasks he calls us to. But he never makes a false assignment. He is the one who creates the change. He is the great restorer. He never calls us to what we can accomplish 
to what we cannot accomplish in him, but he always calls us to what we could never accomplish without him. So yes, it seems impossible. And that's precisely the point. We need his help and he promises to provide it. And this is something, church, we're called to every day. It may not make its way on your task list. It may not be a reminder that pops up on your phone. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But this is day to day applying the mind of Christ. And praise God, the weight of this is not on our shoulders. God is at work in us. He gives us the power and the want to follow his command, what he commands. So the question I want to pose for us this morning is, are you, am I, pursuing growth as a Christian? It's a simple question. What, what would your spouse say about that? What would folks in your home group say? What would your kids say if they're old enough to know what this is? Do they see you putting sin to death, cultivating righteousness, working out your salvation because God is at work in you? Just invite you, invite to, to ask others and invite others in their perspective. It's easy to say, way up high, have this mind of Christ. But this is on the ground, day to day, the mind of Christ. Humility pursues growth. That's the first point. A second aspect in, that we see in the passage is humility pursues witness. Humility pursues witness. Look at verse 14 through 16 again. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now I'm sure many of us have reminded ourselves with verse 14. And if you're a parent, you might have pulled this one out of your back pocket with your kids a number of times. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. But this is, a, this is not only another way that we grow. Notice that the context here of why Paul is commending this is this has to do with our witness. Not just the peace of our homes, not just because we don't like hearing grumbling from others. This has to do with witness. He's talking about conduct so that we shine as lights in the world. And so our witness, our testimony is before a watching world. And so as we work out our salvation, it begins with our mouths, our words. And specifically, getting rid of grumbling and disputing. You know, we can be tempted to grumble and dispute everything from chronic pain in our bodies to hearing a bad call on the court to feeling slighted by a spouse. Many temptations to grumble. And we should note 
We should note, church, this temptation to grumble has always plagued God's people. This is, Paul is actually, throughout this passage, he is drawing on the Old Testament and, the, and specifically Old Testament Israel to make his point. The people of Israel did not work out their salvation with fear and trembling, by and large. And this is seen in how they grumbled and how they complained. Here's just a, a brief sampling. They grumbled because the only water to drink that they had was bitter, Exodus 15. They grumbled because they were hungry, Exodus 16. They grumbled when they were thirsty, Exodus 17. They grumbled about their misfortunes, Numbers 11. They grumbled about the giants who were occupying the promised land, Numbers 14. They grumbled against their leaders, Numbers 16. Grumbling and disputing were the norm for the Old Testament people of God. But it should not have been so. They were saved out of Egypt to be a people for God's own possession. They were God's children, God's representatives on the earth. They were meant to live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation and to shine as lights, but instead they grumbled. They murmured. They complained. We're told in Deuteronomy 32 what happened. Moses says, he says of God, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and that without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. So he's talking about Israel. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So get this. Instead of being blameless and innocent, children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, the people of Israel became the crooked and twisted generation. One murmur, one grumble at a time. Instead of shining as lights, they became darkened. They were not marked by this humble growth and they were not marked by this humble witness. And now, church, we have to realize who, who's being talked about here. This is not like the young Israelites. This is, this is not the immature Israelites. We're talking about the people who had seen God's miracle of bringing them out of slavery. They saw the plagues. They saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They watched the Red Sea part. They were the ones who walked through it. They saw the mighty works of God, and yet they grumbled. They succumbed to this temptation. And so, Grace Covenant Church, I would just exhort us today. Grumbling is not a small issue. It can seem like that. We can give allowance to it. It's not a small issue. Ultimately, all grumbling is against the Lord. 
And before it's words in our mouths, it's an attitude of heart. Grumbling is an evidence of a proud heart. Uh, C.J. Mahaney, in his book, Humility, he writes, An ungrateful person is a proud person. If I am ungrateful, I am arrogant. And if I'm arrogant, I need to remember God doesn't sympathize with me in that arrogance. He is opposed to the proud. And so Paul says, do all, all things, do everything without this contamination of heart. But rather, consider with me the positive aspect and the positive power of our speech. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Doing all things without grumbling and disputing means honoring God with our speech and it leads to these qualities, blamelessness, innocence, living as children without blemish. I mean, wow, what a list. Do you want to shine for Jesus? Well, this is key to shining for Jesus. Our mouths, our words, and the heart behind it. I mean, blameless, when you hear that word, it can conjure up this this idea of like sinless perfection. But that's not what's in view here. James reminds us we all stumble with our words in many ways. But this word blameless, Job was described as a blameless man. He was a sinner. He was a blameless man. In Luke 1, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are described with this same word, blameless. It's not perfection, but it's a pattern of a godly life. And so it starts with our mouths. So let me ask, what are the things that tempt you to grumble? People, disrespect, things going on with the government or politics, what's going on in the news, people, sickness, pain, dashed dreams, people, difficulty at work, inconveniences, Costly or time-consuming home repairs. And by the way, I was able to write this from my own experience. This, this whole list. I didn't have to search very far for these examples. What tempts me to grumble? I have one more thing on the list. People? You and I are called in these verses to prepare our hearts. You, are going, you and I are going to encounter many temptations to grumble every day. Because we, are, we have a sinful nature that remains and we live in the midst of a fallen world. And so, church, let us mortify pride, the pride of grumbling and do all things without it. To pursue grateful words, joyful words, kind words, and in some cases, no words. Using our words to make our requests known to God. And then Paul does something remarkable here in verse 15. 
He not only calls the church to this humble witness, but he describes the context of our witness in ways that it's easy to miss what he just said. He describes the world in which we live as a crooked and twisted generation. And so this is, this is a picture of like a branch or a path. And it's, it's crooked and it's not easily or maybe impossible to straighten. And this is, these are the terms that Paul borrows from the Old Testament and he speaks of the, the church age. The age in which the Philippians live, the age in which we live. Every generation bears this mark. It is a crooked and twisted generation. It's not what it ought to be. The silent generation, the greatest generation, the baby boomer generation, Gen X, millennials, and whatever ones I'm forgetting or come after this. They're all going to be, they all are, crooked and twisted generations, people in which there are some who follow the Lord, love the Lord, who've been redeemed as his people, and the majority rejecting the Savior and showing their need for him. And so church, we we must never forget this. This side of heaven, we, the people of God, have a pilgrim status. Like we are aliens, We are exiles. We're sojourners. This is not our home. In fact, it's a crooked and twisted generation. It's a dark world in which we shine as lights in the world. I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but when I use a flashlight, um, you turn even a, a really bright flashlight in bright daylight, it just looks so wimpy. It's like... Yeah, that, that's not when you need that bright flashlight. It assumes darkness. That's where we shine. We shine in the world. And so we must not think that we can somehow change the world into a not-so-twisted and crooked generation. And I say this as one, I pray and we have prayed and we will continue to be a church that prays for revival in our country, around the world, People coming to know Christ, as great as that would be, it's still not going to lead to a less than crooked or twisted generation. And so our efforts, what's going on in politics, what goes on in laws, what goes on with changes of leaders, the things we pray for, we want to see those things are not our blessed hope. Those things are not our blessed hope. And I I do fear there are some views of the end times that people get from, Christians get from Revelation, views of the end times that seem to impart to Christians a this life hope that is borrowing the hope that we should have when Jesus returns. The only hope that's called the blessed hope is in Titus 2. He says, What's the hope for the church of Jesus Christ? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so church, until we live 
until, uh, uh, while we live, until we get to glory, we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. And so church, this is our opportunity to witness. And it is a beautiful opportunity. While most of the world goes the route of grumbling and disputing, if we put that away, it is an amazing testimony. When people hear us and what comes out of our mouths, it, it stands out because it is so countercultural. Church, as we live in the midst of a world that's like minimizing God and we live in fear and trembling before him, it stands out. It's compelling. It's a witness. And so church, rather than being overcome by darkness, let's reflect his character. Let's reflect and live as his children. This is what humility calls us to do. Humility pursues witness. And then Paul's final point of what it looks like to have the mind of Christ, humility multiplies joy. Paul ends the passage on this note, verses 16 through 18. He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I don't know if anybody recently has said that they are a drink offering in your life. This is not language we're used to hearing. Again, Paul is drawing from the Old Testament an image that Israelites would have been familiar with. A drink offering and a sacrificial offering were both components in the sacrificial system. So a sacrifice was given, usually an animal. It was, it was killed and then it was sacrificed on the altar. It was a burnt offering. This was most common. What was less common was for there to be some liquid poured on top of the offering. It was called a drink offering. Drink offerings were never given all by themselves. They were always poured on top of the sacrificial offering, thus complementing it. Complementing it. And that's the point that Paul's seeking to make here is his labor is complementing their labor. It's kind of like if you were to go to somebody's house for dinner and they were to make a main dish and invite you to bring a side dish and it happens that your side dish complements the main dish, there's this kind of mutual like, yeah, that was fitting. That was good. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. His labors, even if he has to die, are a complementary labor on the sacrifice of the Philippians' obedience. And so Paul's saying this is why he has joy. What he doesn't want to do is pour out his life in vain. Hey, I was there with the drink offering. Where was the sacrificial offering? He's saying it's complimentary. And so he says, I'm glad when what I do 
makes a difference in your all's lives. And I'm glad to see you walking in humility. It brings me joy. There's this multiplied joy. So how does this apply today? We're not Philippi and Paul's no longer around making drink offerings. How does this apply to us today? Well, it means there is joy all around, church. There's joy all around when we are humbly walking with the mind of Christ. When we're working out our own salvation, when we are being witnesses, it is a joy, especially to those who are making investments in us to that end. And so I just, I just want you to know, as a pastor, I have great joy when any of us takes to heart God's word and seeks to live a life worthy of the gospel. When I see humility, I have great joy. When I see people taking a sermon to heart that I can't even remember preaching, I have great joy. Because I'm like, that's amazing. Thank you, Lord. And so anytime you are combating sin, cultivating righteousness, doing things and seeking to do things without grumbling and disputing, shining as lights in the world, church, you are to be commended for these things. And I want you to know that it brings such joy. And likewise, as you make investments into others, you know this joy. Parents know this joy. Those who are making disciples, there's this multiplied and mutual joy. I want you to consider these verses in reverse for a moment. If someone is no longer holding fast to the word of life, let's go of it. Let's go of the gospel. Paul is lamenting. He would feel like his labors of going to Philippi, planting the church, being in prison for sharing the gospel, he'd feel like, man, I got, I got poured out in my life. It was in vain. He's missing the, the, the sacrificial offering. His labors are no longer complementing, and so there wouldn't be multiplied joy. There'd be multiplied grief. God, it would still very much be on the throne, but this is, this is where he's getting to the heart. Oh, Philippians, oh, church, oh, Christians, have the mind of Christ day to day. Let this mind be yours that is in Christ Jesus because humility multiplies everyone's joy. Now, this is a good word for our day and age, which is very much an age of individualism. Where people think, oh, no, it's just, it's just me and Jesus. No. No, it's actually not. It's us and Jesus. And we are side by side. You hear that in chapter 1. Side by side for the faith of the gospel. When you are growing, when you are shining, when you are putting to death sin, there's joy all around. When you are investing in others and they begin humbly Growing and humbly shining, you get a taste of that joy. The Christianity, basic Christianity is not compatible with individualism. It is counterculture. This is the mind of Christ that we are called to church day by day. It is marked as we are humbly pursuing growth, as we are humbly pursuing witness, and as we are in humility, seeing multiplied joy.
I can invite the worship team to return. God is not shy about giving us commands. But what we do and what he commands is ultimately based on what he has done. That's the note I want to end on today. He has not treated us as our sins deserved. He's declared us righteous. If you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, he's declared you righteous. He's adopted you into his family. He's going to bring you home to glory. Jesus is called the author and finisher of your faith. And yet this author and finisher of your faith calls you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what we do is ultimately based on what he has done and on his promises. There's a promise here in verse 13 that he is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Church, may we have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. May we have the mind of Christ, not just in these high and lofty ways, but day by day in these specific ways. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that though we cannot accomplish these things without you, you provide for what you command. Lord, thank you for giving us every reason to use our words to glorify you. Thank you for bringing us out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son so that we can shine. Jesus being the light of the world and we shine for King Jesus. Lord, I pray you would make that practical for us, Lord, that any conviction that we are experiencing now here at the end, Lord, that we would respond today. Maybe we've given ourselves allowance to speak in ways that we know I shouldn't be speaking. Maybe we're disputing and telling ourselves, no, that's just an honest question, but really it's coming from a heart, a proud heart. Oh, Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you, humble ourselves before one another and be humble witnesses in this world. Oh Lord, that many might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That many might see in us and then past us to the perfect Savior. The one who makes provision for sin. The one that welcomes sinners into a right relationship. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.